Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear how Colorado's restaurant and tourism industries are responding to a shortage of workers. With all the help that we get from the government and the support of the community, we almost could keep everybody. Plus, we get an update on Major League Baseball's contentious decision to move this year's All-Star Game to Denver. And we talk with a Boulder group working on sustainable projects that bring Israelis and Palestinians together. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Alana Schreiber. As restrictions on indoor dining continue to lift, plenty of people are enthusiastic about returning to their favorite restaurants. But while the patrons are there, many restaurant owners say they're having trouble finding workers. Here with more on this is Lucas High, a reporter for BizWest. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So a recent survey from the Colorado Restaurant Association found some 90 percent of the restaurateurs that they pulled were having trouble finding staff. Can you sort of fill in the details of this survey for us? It's actually a really interesting survey. So it was um, it was conducted, as you mentioned, by the Colorado Restaurant Association. And what they did is was reach out to uh, almost 200 restaurant operators between late April and early Early May. I just kind of asked them, uh, you know, some, some questions about the, the industry, generally speaking, but, um, you know, mostly kind of about staffing. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, nine out of 10, uh, you know, the folks surveyed said that they were having uh, you know trouble finding staff. There's also the issue of retention, too. So, I mean, not only are these restaurants having a difficult time, you know, finding new staffers, they're at least self-reporting that they're having an, uh, a difficult time retaining folks as well. We should note that, that because this is kind of a self-reported survey, there's not necessarily sort of the uh, you know mathematic rigor that that would that would go into uh, you know kind of a more database survey. So we're sort of having to take these uh, these restaurant tours at their word, but uh, it does really sort of provide some some interesting insight, at least into the into the mindset that the folks in the industry are, are dealing with right now. There's certainly been a lot of attention on this issue at the national level, and you know speculation about why was there a common theme among these Colorado restaurant owners as to to why they're having such a tough time finding workers. It's one of those things that, that's sort of really hard to quantify. Uh, for one reason, uh, recent data can be hard to come by. So, so oftentimes, uh, you know, employment data, whether it be from uh, the Colorado Department of Labor and, uh, and Employment or from from the federal government, is often at least a month, if not a little bit more, uh, behind. So there's, there's there's a lag, and as we know from from last year's pandemic, you know, th- these things are are fast moving phenomena. The reasoning really kind of depends on who you ask. Um, you know, and that kind of can boil down sometimes to sort of a, a more political conversation necessarily than, than a strictly economic one. This survey was asking questions of operators, owners of restaurants. Most restaurant owners are kind of putting the blame on unemployment benefits that they say are, are, are kind of too generous and keeping workers on the sidelines, not encouraging them to get back in the workforce, you know, if they were furloughed or, or laid off over the, the course of the pandemic. But, you know, labor advocates would argue that, that the issue is pay in the industry is, is too low and has been before the pandemic and continues to be after the pandemic. You know, and working conditions are are not particularly great. We're also dealing with another issue to begin with, is that that we're starting from from a really kind of deep 
well right now because of the recession. You know, the Colorado Restaurant Association, not in this survey, but but in another recent report, said that um, 15% of restaurant workers left the industry within the past year. And you know, you, you can kind of understand why. I mean, they've, they've been dealing with kind of this whiplash of, uh, you know, restaurants being open for a couple of weeks, then closed again. They're not really sure what their shift's going to be. And of course, there are other industries where, where those things are also the case. But, you know, in, in those instances, they almost always pay better than, than the restaurant industry. What are restaurants doing to bring employees back? The really obvious thing is kind of, is kind of pay more, right? So, so if folks are are, are at home and uh, there's there's a demand for their for their work, uh, you know, employers should should pay them more to get them to get them to come work for them. And so, according to the the Restaurant Association, that's what they're doing. So, uh, you know, ninety five percent of of the respondents to this survey. I did say that they have begun increasing wages, and then just over twenty uh, percent have said that they've been begun offering benefits packages. This industry is one that that is often sort of plagued with with these issues of lack of lack of benefits, lack of uh, you know the ability to pay into a four hundred one k and things like that. And those are often the things that bring people back from the sideline if if they've been laid off and are, are accepting unemployment. So you think about it this way: like if if I'm if I'm at home accepting unemployment. That's great. I, I might be getting some something close to the level of salary that I was I was earning, but I'm not able to pay into my 401k. I'm not able to um, able to tap into uh, my health insurance or um, you know, any of the other benefits that you may get. However, if if I'm in most industries and I, and I return to the industry, I'm all of a sudden allowed to do those things again. But you know, in the restaurant industry, waiters and, and cooks and dishwashers oftentimes don't have access to those things, which which serve as additional incentives to get folks back off the sidelines. Lucas High is a reporter for BizWest. You'll find a link to his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. To help restaurants and other businesses struggling to recover from the pandemic, the Biden administration has developed several programs which offer financial resources, including a small business opportunity fund, focused on economically disadvantaged areas and minority-owned businesses. El Pueblito's Mexican restaurant is one of those businesses receiving support. They have three locations, each of which has received about $30,000. On Wednesday, Alvaro Ortega, the restaurant manager at El Pueblito's Greeley location, said the relief money was a lifesaver. I kind of was able to sustain my employees uh, due to the to the money we've got, so it wasn't super bad and I, I like to keep my employees so they've stayed with us yeah Ortega said part of the money went to payroll for the restaurant's employees the other half about fifteen thousand dollars went into building a patio so they could increase dine-in business the owner of the restaurant chain Maria Consuelo said it was hard to turn a profit during the pandemic even with takeout and delivery services like DoorDash and Grubhub could take as much as 40 percent of their profits in some cases Delivery was a good option for the business to keep open, but it was hard at the same time. If we're talking about profits and making money, it was almost no money into them. Even so, Consuelo said that her business fared pretty well during the pandemic, compared to others. To tell the truth, we lose only one employee. We were lucky that we could, um, with all the help that we get from the government and the support of the community, we almost could keep everybody. In Estes Park, businesses are dealing with a rush of tourists as pandemic restrictions continue to ease. Hotel bookings are way up, and restaurants and shops are full of visitors eager to travel after a year of being stuck at home. But like the rest of the state, there's also a labor shortage here, and many owners are struggling to keep up. KUNC's Matt Bloom has more. 
At Solitude Cabins, a sprawling mountainside resort with clear views of Long's Peak, Kathy Kochevar is wearing a lot of hats these days. Pretty spectacular, isn't it? <laughs> she owns the place, but she's also cleaning rooms, processing paperwork, and working the front desk. Her cabins have been booked solid since Memorial Day weekend. To be full this early is good and bad again. <laughs> good because bookings were down last year due to the pandemic and wildfires, and bad because right now she can't find enough cleaning staff. She even raised the starting wage to $18 an hour. You know, you could put everything you want in the paper and, and nobody's applying, so. And I'm hearing that all over town. It's not just hotels. All sorts of places are having trouble getting the workers they need. Pepper's Mexican Grill is a fast casual restaurant downtown. Owner Carolyn McKendifer says they've started closing one day a week because of a lack of staffing. She says it's stressful for her and the customers. They're just going to have to be patient. Realize that, you know, we're not going to be able to do things as fast as we have in the past years ago and, and stuff like that. We're just going to be a little bit slower. The reasons behind the shortage are numerous. A lot of workers are still collecting pandemic unemployment benefits. McKendifer says she tried hiring international students through a visa program, but those are still on pause because of the pandemic. I could call it a perfect storm, you know, kind of thing. Another issue is a lack of affordable housing. Estes Park, like many resort communities, has long struggled with rising home prices and flat wages that make it unaffordable for workers to live here. At a construction site across town, crews are putting the finishing touches on a 26-unit housing development called Peak View. Once open, the apartments will be reserved just for people working in Estes, and rents will be several hundred dollars below market rate. We run a wait list um, with more than 350 household names on it. That's Naomi Hoff. She's head of the local housing authority, which funded the project. When it was first posted on Facebook, people flooded her office. And after that, it went like wildfire, 4,000 views and folks saying, well, how can I get one? And so that started a flood of calls into us. And so we've been able to house some of those folks. It's a small step towards solving the issue, but not nearly enough to meet demand. Hoff says the town needs to find ways to build even more. It impacts our economic stability. It really does, because if, if a business owner can't find an employer or is spending money on turnover, attrition costs, because that rotates, employees rotate so often, will have an impact for that business. And that's forced some owners to get creative with their recruiting. Just outside Rocky Mountain National Park, the Castle Mountain Lodge is one of the few places starting the season fully staffed. Owner Chris Wood recruited students from his alma mater in Illinois to fill open slots. That's worked fairly well. You know, very fortunate for us to have that. And it's a huge asset to us. He's also paying for worker housing nearby. Student Stu DeMarcus says that was the deciding factor to take the job. Yeah, that was that was a big plus to just basically like, okay, you get, you know, you work until three or four cleaning and then go explore Colorado for the rest of the day. What more could he ask for? Not all places have the resources to do that, though. Back at Solitude Cabins, owner Kathy Kochevar has started offering an end-of-season bonus of $500 if workers stay through the summer. You just get through it, that's all. <laughs> and you kind of collapse come November, <laughs> but that's okay. She's also planning to outsource some of her cleaning to a private company to keep the guests happy. It's twice as expensive, though, and she hopes to have a few applicants of her own sometime soon. Matt Bloom, KUNC Estes Park.
And just a note, if you're planning to head to Estes and visit Rocky Mountain National Park to hike or just relax, the park's timed entry reservation system is now in effect for the season. This is the second year in a row that Rocky has been limiting visitor access in a bid to control the growing crowds that are damaging the park's landscape. Unlike last year, there are two types of advance reservations available. One permit is for access to the popular Bear Lake Road corridor. The other type is a more general admission permit that excludes the Bear Lake area. Park Superintendent Darla Seidels says timed entry could become a permanent fix for the massive overcrowding issue. Rocky's annual visitation has grown more than 40% over the past decade. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. With summer just around the corner, many Coloradans are excited to take advantage of loosened capacity restrictions on concerts, festivals, and sporting events. One of the most hotly anticipated events of the summer is baseball's All-Star Game. That's when the top players from the American and National Leagues will face off at Denver's Coors Field in July. Back in April, Major League Baseball shocked the nation when it moved the All-Star Game from Georgia to Colorado in order to take a stand against Georgia's new restrictive voting laws, which would likely make it more difficult for people of color to cast a ballot. Earlier this week, a conservative business group added fuel to the fire when it filed a lawsuit against Major League Baseball and the Players Association over the decision to relocate the game. Here to talk about the lawsuit is the Denver Post political reporter, Justin Wingerter. Justin, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me again, Erin. So who exactly filed this lawsuit and, and what was the reasoning behind it? The Job Creators Network filed the lawsuit. They are a conservative pro-business group with members all across the country. They are suing Major League Baseball and the Players Union in federal court in Manhattan, where Major League Baseball is headquartered. And they are seeking $1.1 billion, and they want a judge to force MLB to have the All-Star Game in Georgia. So they are seeking financial damages, I guess, and also to move the game back to Atlanta. They're seeking $100 million, which is what they estimate would be the lost revenue for Georgia businesses. They're seeking $100 million for that, along with $1 billion in punitive damages, essentially for, as they see it, for Major League Baseball being unfair towards Georgia. It seems like, you know, in asking for this, especially the $100 million, that their main argument is that Major League Baseball robbed small businesses from potential revenue. Is that reasoning likely to hold up in court? So the lawsuit makes many claims. Most of them are centered around this idea of a broken promise. Basically, that Major League Baseball said it would have the All-Star Game in Georgia. A lot of Georgia hotels and restaurants and other businesses plan to make a lot of money as a result. And then baseball changed its mind. And because it changed its mind, it owes something to those businesses that stood the game and that will now not gain. In terms of its success, in talking with experts in sports law and contract law, it's my understanding that this lawsuit is a long shot at best. And the reason for that is because the central premise of the lawsuit is that Major League Baseball broke its promise, but there wasn't a promise. Major League Baseball had planned to have the All-Star Game in one place, decided to instead have it in another place, but they never made any promises or signed any contracts with the Georgia businesses that are behind this lawsuit. They didn't violate a contract or break an agreement. 
As a private company, they can host their event, uh, frankly, wherever they choose. Clearly, their contention is the All-Star Game brings substantial revenue to small businesses. With that being the case, I mean, what is the economic impact expected in uh, Colorado and in the Denver area for businesses? Generally, you hear the number 100 million. It's the number that is used in the lawsuit uh, in regards to what Georgia businesses will not gain. And it's it's a number cited often by um, Denver tourism officials. You know, you can certainly understand why Georgia businesses are upset about this and why they want to um, do anything they can to change course. You know, the Job Creators Network says 8,000 hotel rooms were booked around Atlanta and then canceled. You think of industries like hotels and restaurants that have been hard hit, you can certainly understand why they would want to do everything they can to try to change Major League Baseball's mind or get a judge to force them. The All-Star Game is set to take place at Coors Field on July 13th. This is the first All-Star Game since 2019. Obviously, the world has gone through a lot and has changed a lot since then. Do you think there's an added significance to this game? I could see that. I could see a, a pent-up uh, interest in it because, the, as you pointed out, the, the game was canceled last year. So there's a desire as a nation to have fun again, <laughs> to be entertained again, to, to do all those things that we missed last year. Justin Wingerter is the Denver Post political reporter. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Always good to talk with you, Aaron. Thank you. On Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's grip on power was threatened when opposition parties reached a coalition agreement to form a new government and oust him as their leader. This all comes just weeks after a ceasefire ended some of the worst fighting in the region in years. In an area where tensions always seem high, there's a Boulder-based organization that's focused on ground-level solutions. The group, called Sustainable Israeli-Palestinian Projects, or SIP, works in the region on projects that bring Palestinians and Israelis together. We're joined now by SIP President Peter Ornstein and board member Bernard Amadei, who's a professor of engineering at CU Boulder and who also co-founded Engineers Without Borders. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be with you today. The Sustainable Israeli-Palestinian Projects Organization focuses on these grassroots-level projects. These are things that often involve collaboration between single people, a single Israeli and a single Palestinian. Tell us about why you think it's important to focus on these ground-floor relationships rather than statewide initiatives. You know, last year we uh, launched a mini-grant program to support projects that align with our mission, which enhances community building and environmental protection in Israel and Palestine. We're partnering with the Science Training uh, Encouraging Peace, or STEP, program, where we help support two individuals, two women, one Israeli, one Palestinian, who are graduate fellows doing environmental research at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. And the idea is that these students would work closely together throughout their graduate studies, learn about each other's culture and background, and develop social and professional bonds that will last well into the future. And two of the projects that we are helping to fund include teaching Arabic to Jewish kids in Tel Aviv 
and teaching Hebrew to Bedouin women in unrecognized villages in the Negev. Both of them involve cross-cultural education and empowering both the teachers and the students to be more comfortable in each other's societies. Absolutely, and communication is key here. People cannot listen to each other and understand each other. How can they find a common ground together? Projects like that bring people together and make them realize that, well, they are pretty much the same. I'd love to hear about some of SIP's environmental initiatives. Peter, I understand that SIP has worked to address problems of electronic waste burning, as well as clean water in Israeli and Palestinian areas. Most of our work is in the environmental arena, and this ranges from providing technical assistance in waste and sewage management to facilitating the use of inexpensive biodigesters to convert compost and farm waste to cooking gas in off-grid farms and communities, and to assisting with the creation of an environmental education center in Edna. But as you mentioned, one of our longer projects involves the open burning of electronic waste near Hebron. And electronic waste, such as used computers or anything that gets plugged into a wall from both Israel and Palestine, were ending up in the West Bank, where the Palestinians would repair and extract the valuable metals and then sell those metals to the Israelis. The primary method for extracting these metals was simply to burn the scrap electronics in the open fields. And this creates enormous health risks to the burners, to nearby Palestinian and Israeli communities. SIP was approached and we connected with Ann Peters, who is a Boulder-based electronic waste expert. And what followed was a series of workshops that Ann put on in both the West Bank and Israel and a deep relationship with the Greenland Society, which is a, the main Palestinian NGO that's working to address this issue. But it didn't stop there. And we also connected the Palestinian NGO to Mela Glustrom, who is the co-coordinator of Boulder's Rotary Club's Sustainability Committee. And as a result, the Boulder Rotary, in addition to Jerusalem Rotary Club, are working with the Greenland Society to refurbish computers for local schools. Bernard, you're about to launch a new initiative in or around Jerusalem called the All Nations Cafe. Uh, It's a reboot of a program that ended in 2015. What can you tell us about that? All Nations Cafe, to give you a little bit of background, started in 2005 uh, by some uh, young people in uh, Jerusalem. And the idea was to uh, create a site, essentially a place, a physical place where young Palestinians and young Israelis would um, talk together, have a coffee together, sing together, dance together, argue together, uh, a place to connect. In 2015, it stopped, and so we are relaunching All Nations Cafe, called it All Nations Cafe 2.0, on June 24th in uh, in Jerusalem, building on the successes of the previous version, but adding to it a component of uh, exchange, working together, learning about conflict resolution, having workshops, training entrepreneurship, working on basic technology. And our vision is even broader than that. We are going to expand it. So there will be All Nations Cafe, Jerusalem, uh, Paris, London, Denver. And the idea here is to tap into the energy of the youth. There are so many young people around the world who want to change the world yesterday. But how do we now sit down and how do we change the world today and tomorrow? How do we take that energy and essentially transmute it into action? 
How would you characterize the collective goals of all of these projects? Last week, Sabwi Saddam, Deputy Secretary General of the Fatah Central Committee, said the conflict has proven over the years that no party is capable of throwing the other into the sea. So eventually there will be sanity in this part of the world and there will be coexistence. So if the other leaders in the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and in Israel can get that message that neither the Jews nor the Palestinians are going anywhere and they can recognize the human dignity of each other, then I am optimistic that political solution can happen. The conflict can be classified as what is called an intractable conflict. 5% of all conflicts in the world are intractable. In other words, we cannot address them with traditional conflict management methods. So the way I look at the work of SIP, providing a new narrative to the conflict. What is that new narrative? I think it's an open-ended question there, of course, but it's optimistic. There's that quote from Albert Einstein that problems cannot be solved with the same level of thinking that created them. But it's not just on the same level of thinking. It's the problems cannot be solved with the same level of compassion, with the same level of leadership, with the same level of peace that created them. Bernard Amade and Peter Ornstein with the Sustainable Israeli-Palestinian Projects Organization based in Boulder. Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we get an update on the final bills state lawmakers are working on as the session nears the end. I'm Alana Schreiber. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.